Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. Today is August 31st, 2021, and it's episode 111, 111, which is a lucky number if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, how are you this morning? <laughs> I'm doing fine. I'm looking forward to discussing some articles today that are going to be intriguing, interesting, and and two different articles, one present day and one futuristic. Yes. We'll be looking at a video of Arthur C. Clarke today, um, just sort of... It was interesting what he had to say, I believe, so it's uh, worthy of checking out. And then we'll be talking about what's happening in China at a company called Alpha Texture, or what was ARM China, the ARM uh, instruction set for every microprocessor that goes in your phone, basically, and uh, in Internet of Things devices. Um, they fired their CEO, and the CEO said, yeah, sure, you can fire me. Why don't you come and try to remove me from the building? And uh, when they tried to remove him, they were met with armed private security. And he's basically saying, this is my company now. And it looks like that's going to be allowed to stand. So that's an interesting story, I would say. Um, mm -hmm. But before we get into that, should we look at uh, the Arthur C. Clarke stuff? Yes. That's, that's very interesting, too, in a different way, but very interesting, and it has to do with technology. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's also on YouTube. Let me... We're talking today with... Oh, wait. Let me... Uh, I'm sorry about this, everyone. We're I'm talking today with... Oh, come on, YouTube. Uh, I'll, let me share this with you so you can hear it in real time with me, okay? Okay. So... All right, so this is a third time's a charm. Uh, shall we get into this video? It's very short, five minutes. Um, and if you want to pause it, let me know, okay? Okay. Clark, the man we're talking today with Arthur Clark, the man responsible for communication satellites. Mr. Clark. You said uh, not too long ago that in terms of communications, we're still in the semaphore and uh, smoke stage. Would you put that in context, please? Well, as far as the home is concerned, we have TV and, ra uh, and uh, radio and telephone. Um, the telephone is the only way we can communicate outside yet. We get a lot of communication inwards through the radio and TV. But we're going to get devices which will enable us to send much more information to our friends. They'll be able to see us, we'll be able to see them, we'll be able to extend, uh, exchange uh, pictorial information, um, graphical information, data, books, and so forth. What would uh, the ideal communications device be in your eyes? Well, it would be uh, a high-definition TV screen and a typewriter keyboard. And through this, you can exchange any type of information, send messages to your friends, which they can read at not, they can wait when they get up, they can see what messages come in the night. Uh, you can call in through this any information you want, airline flights, price of things at the supermarket, books you've uh, always wanted to read, news, you selectively, you can say, you'll tell the machine, I'm interested in such and such items, sports, politics, and so forth, and the machine will hunt the main central library and bring all this to you selectively, just what you want, not all the junk which you have to get, you know, when you buy the 
two or three pounds of wood pulp, which is the daily newspaper, and saying this is going to save whole forests for posterity, because the newspaper is on the way out, and we can't, we're not going to ship, ship all this tons and tons of paper around when we all need this information. Well, if we have face-to-face -face communications from our home, does this uh, clue in with your slogan, commute, don't commute, communicate? Yes, and uh, we are moving slowly, perhaps not, perhaps too slowly, towards this kind of world. And this is the way we're going to solve the traffic problem, ultimately, not by covering the world with concrete, but by getting rid of the traffic. And in the world of the future, travel will be for pleasure, not necessity. And how will this, uh, how will this sort of communication and travel for pleasure affect our social lives, do you think? In terms of, say, time zones. Yeah. Well, at least, well, it's going to affect our social lives in many ways, as much as the automobile has done in the past, in many ways negatively, as much as the telephone has done in the past. You mentioned time zones, which are of concern in a country like the United States already, where you telephone from one coast to the other and your friends may be asleep or they may wake you up in the middle of the night. But in the global village of the future, it'd be like living in one small town where at any time about a third of your friends are asleep, but you won't even know which third. So we may have to abolish time zones completely and all go on the common time, same time for everybody, which will cause all sorts of problems. When you first came up with the concept of communication satellites, uh, didn't many scientists think this was a pretty far out and unreasonable idea? Well, it was far out. It was 36,000 kilometers out. <laughs> but um, no, not at that time. This was 1945, and the V-2 rockets had arrived. And when my paper was published, the atomic bomb had been dropped. So at that time, people were prepared to accept almost anything. And I don't think, I don't remember any negative criticisms. In fact, I don't remember any, any comments at all, to tell the truth. But there's certainly no feeling this was nonsense. And t 10 years before, there would have been. But 1945, no. What do you see ahead in terms of, really far ahead in terms of communications? Well, the, th the thing that really interests me isn't so much human communications, but communications with other intelligences elsewhere. Uh, this is the biggest unknown across the one of the most exciting prospects. Will we ever pick up signals from space, radio signals or any other kind of signal? Everybody feels sure there must be all sorts of higher civilizations out there with tremendous technological capabilities. And we ought to be able to pick up their, uh, their signals, even if they're not beamed at us. They must have tremendous powers to play with. And I hope that I live to see you know, the first reception of an signal from outer space. Do you think that you will? Do you think it's that close? It could happen tomorrow. Nobody knows. It could happen tomorrow. It might be in the evening papers right now that someone has picked up the first signal. There have been several false alarms. People have thought they had done this. The pulsars of people who found the pulsars first, these very rhythmic signals, yes. they thought they might be artificial. This is very exciting. Um, you also talk about a wristwatch. A wristwatch radio. Well, Dick yes, Tracy, of course, had this uh, many years ago. And the wristwatch telephone uh, you know, it will be technologically feasible very soon. And um, so the telephone will no longer be sort of fixed in one place. It will be completely mobile. And this would again restructure society. And uh, of course, it has, it has disadvantages as well as advantages. It means that anyone can get at you anytime you like. And of course, you could switch off the calling sign, but then you have the calling signal, but then you might have to explain later why it was switched off. But the advantages are so great. The number of thousands of lives will be saved every year by such a thing, and that seems to me to override almost all other considerations. Thank you very much, Mr. Clark. We've been speaking with Arthur Clark, the man behind the communications satellite. This is Pat McCallum for AT&T Monitor. I thought that was pretty good. It's very, it is very, 1976 is when that was aired.
<laughs> yeah, he just said it was, he just said it could happen. I uh, switch back to us. There we go. Okay. Anyway, yeah, I thought it was fascinating. He said a lot of things uh, that were in 1976 futuristic, but actually, if we listen to that today, I think we would say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. But in 76, I go, what? Really? No, that's not going to happen. Uh, well, it did. It did. Mm -hmm. And it, it has happened now. One thing that hasn't happened is the is the communication with uh, uh, outer space type of uh, communications. Uh, that has not happened the way we think. Uh, who knows? Maybe it has happened. We don't know. In in our in our definition of yes. communication. And I mean, I think that he was spot on about a lot of stuff. And when he talked about contacting uh, extraterrestrial life, that was when he was asked to look way far out. You know, she's like, what do you see way far out? And he's like, oh, I hope we can. Uh, but that wasn't like, what do you see happening based upon what we have today? Which was when he was saying, basically, we're going to have the Internet and we're going to have the Apple Watch. <laughs> That's more or less what he said, right? <laughs> yeah. Or, or Google. Mm -hmm. uh, he 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 pretty much uh, talked about Google, you know, like, yeah, we're going to have you say, I want to know this and I go out and get uh, search all the information and then send here's the information you need. You know, today we just Google it. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, he felt like if we don't need newspapers, we're going to save forests. But that didn't happen. <laughs> no, it didn't. Well, it did happen because we don't. We saved force for that one little area, but then what happened was that the world got so complex that other things began to happen. Mm -hmm. so, well, he kept saying there's going to be good and bad, which is true. There's going to be good parts. There's going to be bad parts. And you can predict you can predict the good parts, uh, but sometimes the bad parts of it, yeah, it's it, it's a surprise. You know, you're blindsided, and it comes at you, and you don't really realize. Mm -hmm. I also thought it was fascinating his. Uh, I think communications etiquette changes. So it's like, you'll ring your friend and it'll be the middle of the night. And it's like, we may have to go to one time zone if we can communicate all over the world instantaneously. And like, that seems asinine to us. But I think that's based upon the communications etiquette of the 70s. Right? Right. That's right. That's right. And 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 she, uh, I forget the lady's name. She was good. It was good questions. Uh, she said, well, how will that, change our social lives and uh, it will change it it will change our social interaction and what the standards are and uh, ethics and what's expected and it's changed a lot mm -hmm. changed a lot because back in the 70s and even the 60s and 70s uh you phone you tell you phone someone phone call says oh there's no answer okay i'll call back later today when you call someone on your phone you expect them to answer because it's on them. And the etiquette is answer or do something. And if you don't answer, sometimes you say, especially email. When you email someone, you should email them back very, very soon or they get upset. Mm -hmm. So there's a different type of communication etiquette. Um, he was saying if you call someone in the middle of the night, that's very rude of you. But now if someone emails you and you don't respond right away, that's rude of the receiver, the recipient. Yeah. 
So I, it's just I think that, uh, um, you know, times change. So his concerns about time zones were relatively unfounded. You just find a way to cope with it. You're not going to change time zones because of communication. Like it's still you still want it to be 7 a.m. in the morning and 7 p.m. at night. You know, why would it be, you know, 7 a.m. in the dead of night in Russia? That doesn't make sense. Well, another way to take what he said about changing time zones is that the time zones literally are still the same. But now when you call someone, you're going to think, we're here. Where are they? When do I call? What time is it there when they're going to receive this? And so you start thinking of those things. Whereas in 1976, you didn't. Yes. You just called. But today, we do think, like, uh, we're going to talk to someone in London. Let's see, they're eight hours away. Uh, so therefore, we need to call now. It's going to be this time there. So you think of those things now. And so the, the social etiquette is uh, uh, consider uh, the, the recipient when you make a call. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't usually get too political, but I will. I was reminded of this from the early days of the Trump administration. Um, Trump's diplomatic learning curve, time zone. Trump has to be reminded of different time zones when calling. Trump's time zone troubles reportedly come up on a constant basis. <laughs> Trump's foreign policy held back by grasp of time zones and maps. Trump literally doesn't understand time zones. Donald Trump calls world leaders at awkward hours. <laughs> Trump reportedly doesn't get how time zones work. Um, I I bet you for most of his life he was doing business in Florida, Atlantic City, um, New York City. Uh, yes, he does have properties, you know, throughout the world. But a lot of those properties just license his name. I mean, he doesn't actually own them. Uh it would be weird to be able to be in contact with the whole world to say, oh, oh get me the prime minister of Japan. It's like, well, it's four in the morning there. Like, yeah, but I'm the president of the United States. <laughs> get him on the line, right? So apparently in, in diplomacy, too, there's still uh, etiquette to time zones. Well, there should be. People are people. Mm -hmm. Even if they're heads of state, they're still people. And they still sleep. And they still eat. And they mm -hmm. still breathe. And they still drink, right, David? That's right. The other thing he said was in 1945, you know, the atom bomb had been dropped. We had V2 rockets and talked about communication satellites. And uh, he, he talked about how you could have geocentric uh, uh, satellites for communication. And uh, one thing he said that I really thought was fascinating, uh, he said, well, when I said it, oh, he's, uh, the question was, she said something like, well, when you proposed that, was there some some backlash? He says, not really. No one really, con uh, uh, there's no controversy at all. Uh, but of course, in 1945, we've seen the atom bomb, we've seen V2 rockets. And so people could actually understand that. But then he said, if I had said that in 1935, then it probably wouldn't have been accepted. In just 10 years. And so what's accepted is what is being observed. And so just 10 years, uh, the, the mood changed, but what they actually saw. So in other words, they are going to accept the, the, the communication satellites, geopositional satellites, geocentric uh, uh, 
position satellites because they've seen the technology. Mm -hmm. But then he would, if someone does see the technology before it's there, then it's going to be discounted. And that that was fascinating to me. It was just 10 years. That's all it was. Just 10 years. There was a big difference on what was accepted and not accepted as something that's possible. Well, we talk a lot on this show about Bitcoin. Uh, and if you were to tell someone in the future, I see uh, perhaps a decentralized currency being used as the means of exchange. And you said that 10 years ago, you know, just shortly after Nakamoto released his white paper, people would say, you're insane. But now, you know, Bitcoin has a market cap of half a trillion dollars or whatever. And people are like, well, that's more possible now than it was 10 years ago. The, the viability of the concept works. Well, part of my personality or somehow the way I think is that uh, the 35 to 45 with Arthur C. Clarke and uh, the Bitcoin, you know, 10, 15 years ago to today, I'm thinking, uh, here we are in 2021. Uh, what do we think today of the technology that we see? Where's it going to go? But then if we can somehow transport 10 to 15, 20 years in the future, what new technology will we see that we don't see today? that will be here that will be something new, brand new. Mm -hmm. And I think those types of areas are like like uh, the sci-fi uh, science fiction writers and, and people who are dreamers, uh, they write about these things, but they're not necessarily uh, impossible. Uh, they're, not, they're impossible today, but they not be, may not be impossible in the future. So I think there's there's a place for what everyone's opinions are because you don't get discount anyone, you don't really believe everyone, <laughs> mm -hmm. but you respect everyone on what they say because it might happen. Yeah, I do think uh, you have to respect them if they say it might happen. If they guarantee you mm -hmm. that it will, then it's you got to sort of take what they say with a grain of salt, and especially if right. they guarantee you that it will. If you give them money, <laughs> a lot of times a guarantee that something will happen involves you loosening your purse strings. Um, if someone was so certain that it will happen, uh, they should also be smart enough to not have to ask you for money to make it happen. <laughs> yeah. So they, uh, in other words, what you're saying is that that is what I said was very true. Mm-hmm. But people can use that for good and use that for uh, for self-purposes. Yes, I was recently pitched, and you know this, um, a cryptocurrency project that did not, to my eyes, seem uh, all that legitimate. And you just, I mean, it's it's easy to say, oh, I think I'll take a pass on this one. I don't, I don't want to be a part of this. Um, but you can find yourself knee deep in it and, you know, it could either crash or you could make a million dollars. But then the IRS comes knocking on your door and you might get sent to, to jail like Al Capone did for tax fraud, you know, if, if it's not above board. And or it could be the type of thing where it's like, what do you need from me? And it's like, well, I need you to invest in this project. It's like, well, I don't necessarily believe in the project, but uh, I may sit on the sidelines 
and it may actually come to fruition and be uh, completely above board, and I may miss out on my chance for a billion dollars. The thing I remember is Jeff Bezos talking about in like 95, 96, he needed a million dollars to help fund Amazon. So he went to all of his business school friends and all the people that he knew, and he said, I asked about 100 people, and I got 20 of them to give me $50,000. And I gave them each 2% of the company or something. No, 1% of the company. So he sold 20% of the equity in the company for 50, or 1% of the equity in the company for $50,000. He's like, and those people are all, they're worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And the 80 people I didn't ask, they wish that they would have invested. But at the time, it wasn't a good investment for them. It was risky. Like, there's no way you can tell that an investment like that will pay off. But he had a vision of the future, and Amazon became the company that sort of wrought the vision of the future. But there's a lot of other companies that were optimistic that they would be the ones that would design the vision of the future, and they didn't, that people invested in. Sure, a lot more people have lost $50,000 betting in a startup than have made hundreds of millions betting on a startup. I guess that's the, the lesson. That's true. That's true. <clears throat> and also, when I think of that, I, I always think of uh, why would someone invest $50,000 in something that doesn't sound that great, but it's possible. Uh, well, it, it's, it, will, it will not be your last 50000 They'll have 50000 to invest. Yes, that's true. And so the people who made that money probably are the 20 people that really could could lose the money and not hurt them. Mm-hmm. But speaking of the IRS, sometimes you have to understand how things work. Do you not? Yeah. And so sometimes, you know, you think, well, that's not going to work, not in our society, but then maybe in another society they will work. Oh, yes. You Is, are, you, are you trying to push us towards our uh, second topic? Well, that, that, it came in, the second topic. That's exactly <laughs> right. Like, yeah. That's not going to work here, but I don't know. Maybe it will work. It's, no, that's Ill, that's unethical. It's not illegal, but it's unethical. That's a pyramid scheme. So pyramid schemes un, are unlawful. Unlawful. But can you can you put together some kind of a, a Bitcoin or art, altcoin scheme that's not s- strictly pyramid, but has it looks like a pyramid. But so it's not illegal. Uh, but it's unethical. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to make money that uh, people who invest in are not going to make money. And so uh, is that how things work here? Uh, not really. Not, but then things work differently in other countries. That's true. And that gets us into our second topic. But before we move on, I will pull up the article now. Um, Warren Buffett, one of his rules for investing is never invest in something you don't understand. Right. And I think... ARM, one of the largest microprocessor architecture licensing companies in the world, didn't really understand how business works in China. And they got a rude awakening. Yeah, but I don't... That's true, but from reading the article, I got the impression that they didn't understand, but they didn't know that they didn't understand. They (laughs) thought they understood. Mm -hmm. Because they were saying, this is how it works, here, so that's how it works in China, and that was not true. So I think they're not going to make that same mistake again. Yes. 
And other with this article, other people should not make that mistake either. Other companies and other countries, nations should not make that mistake. But then that's a good lead in an introduction to what is it? What yes. Happened? Well, I think that your point, what you just said is extremely well taken, that this was allowed to happen by the Chinese government. But what will the fallout be with other, you know, Western companies um, because of this? Because th I, this seems big to me, and it's there's hardly any co coverage of it. I didn't find a New York Times article. I found an extreme tech article. It's not exactly um, the New York Times. You know what I mean? But I think that well, this this will have repercussions across the business and technological worlds. That this should be front page news. Well, business worlds, technological worlds, political worlds, I mean, in, a, in social, uh, all kinds of things because of technology, things are not just local uh, or domestic, they're international. Mm -hmm. And so you have to start understanding how these different nations deal with business. And uh, here's a great example of you didn't understand uh, how they would call holding, uh, what's the term, David? The seal. Holding the seal. So shall we get into the article? Yes. Okay, it's called Arm China Seizes IP Relaunches as an Independent Company from Yesterday by John Hruska. The one-time CEO of Arm China, Alan Wu, has reportedly seized control of Arm's Chinese business venture, Arm China. Mr. Wu is accused of attempting to launch his own company, Alphatecture, by leveraging his position at Arm China to do so. Companies were reportedly offered discounts on Arm China products. Let me make this a little bigger. Um, if they would invest in Alpha Texture. Investors in Arm agreed to oust Wu for this behavior in a board vote, 7 to 1. But Wu still possessed the seal of the company, which makes him its legal representative as far as Chinese law is concerned. Wu hired security to keep armed Arm employees from entering Arm China. I wonder if they were armed security. I think they were. Uh, uh, good job. He fired uh, employees who did not wish him to take over the company and has sued Arm China to declare his own dismissal as CEO illegal. This means Alan Wu, the person, is suing Alan Wu, Arm China. As Devin Patel reports, Arm has responded by refusing to transfer any IP from its new products. The newest CPU core Arm China has access to is the Cortex-A77. I do not know how recent that is, but I'm assuming it's relatively recent. Um, <clears throat> Wu has responded in turn by holding an event declaring that a bunch of Chinese characters that appear to mean Arm Limited is an enormous success and that it would soon ship new XPU line of products consisting of AI accelerators and processing units, image signal processors, security processors, and video processors. Most of this equipment is targeting the Internet of Things market. Patel claims SoftBank's short-sighted, profit-driven behavior is at the root of this problem. In 2018, SoftBank agreed to cede control of ARM's Chinese operations to the ARM-China joint venture. Arm SoftBank only owns 49% of Arm China, while the Chinese own 51%. The Chinese government's goal for the merger, according to Nikkei Asia, was to secure sources of technology, especially for some sensitive chips that later go into government or other security uses, an anonymous chip executive stated. 
China does not need to worry whether other countries like the U.S. could somehow pressure ARM to provide less support for Chinese companies. This Asian Nikkei story goes into detail on how SoftBank's agreement left it with very little control. It's not clear how much pressure was put on SoftBank from the merger, but this looks like one of the most blatant examples of IP theft that we've seen. The Chinese arm of a company has gone rogue. The arm makes it a little bit confusing. The Chinese arm of a company has gone rogue and refused to obey the ruling of its own board. (laughs) The head of that company is essentially treating it as a personal fiefdom, and Chinese authorities do not appear to have taken meaningful action to rein in Mr. Wu. While ARM China does not currently have access to the ARM V9 instruction set or any additional ARM IP, it appears that the company will attempt to use previously transferred assets to bootstrap its own transformation into an independent company. NVIDIA may or may not be able to come to some kind of agreement with this renegade corporate entity as part of its effort to buy ARM, but that effort will need to clear EU scrutiny before NVIDIA gets involved in any conversation. The EU recently said it will investigate the ARM-NVIDIA merger. NVIDIA has said it will work with the European Commission to address any concerns they had. ARM had no comment on the story. So there's that international, how they're going to view any type of relations with China now. Uh, Yeah, fascinating article. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I don't know if we've mentioned to our listeners what ARM is. ARM is a chip. Oh, Uh, so yeah, let me do the uh, breakdown. For years, we had a a microprocessor architecture called x86, and that was an Intel processors, the IBM 286, 386, 486. Um, When it went from 32 bits to 64 bits, AMD uh, allowed the x86 architecture to be ported to a 64-bit machine. So they often call that AMD 64, but they also call it x86 64. And that's what your, typically your computer runs on. That most computers for the last 30 years have run on the x86 architecture. Well, the ARM and it's uh, like a RISC-V, reduced instruction set computer or whatever, it has a smaller cons- uh, instruction set for the processor cores. So it's actually more energy efficient. And so people sort of chose ARM processors, the ARM instruction set, licensing uh, the processor cores from ARM to put into cell phones. And so you have companies like Samsung with their Exynos, um, Qualcomm, Snapdragon, and Apple with their A5, A6, M1 chips now. So now the, uh, there's desktop computers using ARM chips, um, but historically that hasn't been the case. Um, so the big tech companies are licensing ARM uh, instruction sets to build their own processors. And then we started to see Huawei licensing ARM for their Kirin processors. Um, And what is ARM good for? Well, it's good for all the devices that people actually use these days. So it's predominantly been phones, but it's, like they said, Internet of Things devices. And it could be used now in laptops. Apple has proven that's a completely viable model to have ARM-based laptops. So it's the microprocessor architecture of the future, probably. Yeah, because because of the reduced instruction set, it's it's portable. Uh, you can put it in uh, Internet IoT Internet of Things. Uh, it's trans it's transportable. Uh, it's easy to program. It's easy to to uh, interface it with other types of op- applications. And it so, gets better battery life. I think it's more energy efficient than x eighty six. Right, right. So, 
So it's streamlined. It's a more of a streamlined uh, a chip uh, that's going to overtake because it's more efficient and uh, it's it's uh, it's more versatile. Mm-hmm. Well, China clearly wanted with with ARM coming to China. Um, they say SoftBank got caught with its hand in the cookie jar. So SoftBank owns ARM. If we go back to the article, mm-hmm. um, profit-driven behavior. The problem is, you know, let's say Huawei wants to make Kirin processors. Well, that's millions and millions of, you know, the license fees on that is extraordinarily profitable for a Chinese phone company making phones for the Chinese market. Um, and they're making their processors in-house. And ARM says, if all we have to do is just set up a subsidiary in China, and we'll get all of this revenue. But now it looks like instead of getting all this revenue from here on out, you're going to lose all this IP. Because by setting up in China, they're going to steal all of your IP and then say that they're an independent company. Yep. Which is a big, big message to all other types of companies that think they're going to go into China and take advantage of the market. Mm-hmm. Because you have, it's not just the market over there, it's the uh, governmental uh, regulations. And I think so, this, this is a telling line from the article. The head of the company is essentially, oh, you know, Chinese authorities do not appear to have taken meaningful action to rein in Mr. Wu. That means to me, because like you said, what impact will this have on companies in the future trying to get into the Chinese market? What impact will people say, well, we're not going to give away the seal. We want the seal to belong with our board. Because if the seal belongs to Mr. Wu, the board doesn't have any power to vote him out. Um, if you have to sell 51% of the subsidiary to China and then you know the parent company only owns 49, do they really own anything? Um, and yeah, the Chinese market looks nice, but you know it's nicer not losing all of your IP <laughs> um, or having it stolen just years after you ink a deal. Yeah. Now, I guess my point was the authorities, I think one reason that they're sort of sitting on their hands with this, because there have been blatant IP thefts before and the authorities have done stuff, because that wasn't a hill they're willing to die on. But to control the future of microprocessor production is, as I think it's key to which nation sees primacy in the future. Right now, it's United States uh, and SoftBank is a Japanese company. So Intel, AMD, and SoftBank hold the microprocessor architectures. And they're developing these architectures. If China can bootstrap their own microprocessor architecture, they may be able to outperform or outcompete the Intel's, AMD's, and ARM's of the world. And then they set the agenda. And so maybe this theft of intellectual property is meaningful enough that the authorities are saying, this is a hill we're willing to die on. You, You steal this property and do your best to make China the number one chip manufacturer uh, in the world. Well, I think the key here is not what Alan Wu did, because pretty much anyone would do that all over the world. I think the key is what China did when Alan Wu did that. He didn't, they didn't do anything. He said, sure, fine. Uh, and so that, that wouldn't happen uh, in other countries. 
So I, I think that's the key on what what China did. And so there are political. That's right. There's there are political uh, implications to this as well. I think that's kind of what you're moving into. Mm-hmm. So so the the technology uh, is extremely important because there are political advantages to the technology. Um, and uh, like we said, and I, I was, we were talking about this before the stream started, I was looking at some comments, I was trying to get information on this, and we'll go here. Wu still possessed the seal of the company, which makes him its legal representative as far as, we talked about this at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, the 5149 thing, I think it's a requirement in a lot of joint venture deals in China. And people mm-hmm. say that's that's important, but the seal historically and culturally is extraordinarily important. And I guess some companies have just given it away to have access to the Chinese market. Other companies have fought it in the negotiation process of setting up a joint venture. Uh, and I think that's just sort of shows how much you know about the culture. Right. So uh, what this instance proves is that a seven to one board vote is meaningless. If Mr. <laughs> Wu holds the seal. Now, I think a lot of Western companies will be like, no, it doesn't matter who holds the seal. If the board votes you out, you leave. And it's like, if the board votes you out in Brussels, you leave. If the board votes you out in Chicago, you leave. But if the board votes you out in Shenzhen and you have the seal, you don't have to leave. And I don't think that Western companies, when they're setting up these joint venture deals, understand that. Yeah, if you have the seal... The other person leaves. Mm-hmm. The board leaves. That's yeah. what happened. So I do think this has uh, broad-ranging effects, that this is an interesting, crazy story that is more meaningful to the world than a lot of the stuff that people get worked up about. <laughs> and the impl- I, you're right. The implications are great. Now, why, David, you mentioned that uh, you didn't find this anywhere. Uh, just on this extreme tech, uh, mm-hmm. you know, any of the news didn't pick this up. Uh, the New York Times or Washington Post. And uh, wouldn't this be a significant uh, impact on our economy, our technology, our culture, or even even our government? Yeah, I think so. I'm trying to, I'm just doing a quick arm China. So I, I was asking that to, to move to the aerial. <laughs> Why not? Um, Go ahead. So, yeah, look. Uh, semi-analysis. Slashdot is a Y Combinator, Hacker News. Bloomberg, finally. Bloomberg finally put out some. Oh, no, that's April 9th. Um, so his announcement of a company... He said, well, we're, we're a new company now. Um, I don't know. I just, I find it fascinating um, that he's declaring a full-on revolt and relaunching as an independent company, and you don't find articles about this. Yeah, there's a Bloomberg article, but it's from April. Um, there's Y Combinator. So Y Combinator is like an investment startup uh, hedge fund, I think, but they do news as well. Wu is an American citizen with deep CCP ties. Um, so that's 
four days ago. Slashdot is a respected tech blog, I believe. I'm not sure. Uh, 21 hours ago. Um, three, three technology websites report on it. I don't see anything from the New York Times. And I, I feel like the microprocessor architecture that's in everybody's phone, that's licensed by Apple, Samsung, and Qualcomm to make all the processors that power the modern world, sets up a subsidiary in China. The, chi- the CEO of the subsidiary steals all the IP, kicks everyone out with armed guards despite the board voting to fire him seven to one and says, no, I'm in control of this and now we're a new company. That deserves to be reported on as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, there, there's a lot of deeper issues there than just the technology. Uh, the, which brings up to me brings up the question, uh, which may be for another time. Uh, why, why, why wasn't this reported? Uh, they don't understand uh, the implications, or maybe uh, the implications we don't understand uh, that there may be something that it's emerging and it hasn't really fully developed yet. Mm-hmm. That's another thing. Or there's some political things that you don't want to talk about it because it's politically sensitive right now, and it could go south. You know, you don't know. So it's a this is a uh, at at the surface level go oh well that's interesting, but when you drill down deeper, it can be very very impactful and very significant uh, news that are that's coming out now, because you 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 nailed it on the head, David. That uh, a, a chip. Uh, a chip that's in all of our phones that that uh, it's our communications that uh, when you have co- control of communications uh, in the future, uh, you're going to have control of people. Mm-hmm. And we've seen we've seen that in the past. We've seen it in present. And that's going to be true in the future. So that this is a significant article. Yes. And I think you may be right. I mean, I don't want to get too conspiracy theory about it, but uh, shout out to Joel Ruska. And extreme tech for mm-hmm. posting this yesterday at 8:17 a.m. because I do think this is an important story and it's surprising to me that it's not give, getting as much coverage. Um, I mean, we could theorize why not. Could be political reasons. Could be national security reasons. Could be any number of reasons. Or it could be that um, some of the details in this that we don't understand, like. Uh, China has access to the Cortex A77. Maybe that's old, you know? Uh, And then they also say the latest, they do not have ARM V9 or whatever later. Do you remember when that said that? Yeah, let's see. Yes. Uh, Well, ARM China does not currently have access to the ARM V9 instruction set or any additional ARM IP. It appears the company will attempt to use previously transferred assets to bootstrap its own transformation into an independent company. Well, maybe we don't understand enough about technology. And they're on ARM V8. There's no way they could catch up. But maybe there is a way they could catch up. And maybe having that infusion of very sensitive IP, even if it's a generation old, is enough for them to catch mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Uh, even even if they don't catch up, they they will still be in a position uh, to be competitive, at least in the China market. Yeah, or in the and, Internet of Things market. Looks like what they're targeting, where you don't need state of the art, bleeding edge processors. You just need processors that work. Yeah, that's true. And in the IoT, in the Internet of Things market, 
if they can make an impact there and be a leader in that market, that's just part of the link of all the communication. So yeah, you can have the phones, you can have human communication. We have access and we have control of the communication of all the things that humans interact with. So it may be more uh, uh, sinister than you might think, mm-hmm. uh, or more more impactful than you might think at the surface. Yeah, we have we have we have more uh, uh, advanced technology. Uh, our our IP or intellectual property is more advanced. Yes, but we have access to something that's critical link in all of your communication, and that is all the things that you <clears throat> are are dealing with. Mm-hmm. So who knows? And that's not. I'm not saying that it's a true. We're just throwing things out that it could be that. Mm-hmm. But one thing for sure, that again, shout out to to the uh, this author, John uh, Joel Joel Ruska. Joel Ruska. Shout out to him for this article. Very good article. It was it was well well uh, well taken by us, and uh, the implications are I think very interesting to see where it's going to go. I think conspiracies are dangerous, but you need to think what could happen, but realize that they haven't happened unless someone like Joel Ruska is going to report them. Yeah. I mean, and I, I mean, we're not saying there's a reason why no one's reporting on this because it doesn't matter. We're saying I think this should matter more. <laughs> so at least Joel Ruska is reporting on it because I feel like this is important and maybe I'm wrong. But the thing is, people... Uh, they'll read, so let's go back to the article here, 474 shares. Um, there'll be hundreds of thousands of shares on what Meghan Markle had for breakfast. This is at least <laughs> as important as that. As that that's all I'm saying. So many more shares, yeah, uh, on things that are social, uh-huh. that really have very little to no impact on our lives. Other than interest. Whereas the yeah. ARM microprocessor architecture <clears throat> is responsible for the ability to share things. <laughs> so so the, the things couldn't even be shared if it weren't for the ARM microprocessor architecture. I don't, um, it's all very fascinating. And I don't think that we know enough about it to speak intelligently about what this means. Because I don't know what the Cortex A77 is. Um, I don't know what this XPU line uh, will be capable of or what they'll be able to parlay the IP that they stole into. Uh, and I don't know what ARM V9 instruction set, what the advantages are of that over ARM V8. These are all things we're ignorant of. But it does seem important that the, I believe that the ARM microprocessor architecture, because of Internet of Things devices, because of phones um, and tablets, there may be more ARM devices deployed in the world than there are x86 devices, in which case it is the uh, most used microprocessor architecture in the world. I'm not sure about that, but it's up there. It's one or two. Mm-hmm. That's that's the old adage of uh, in your supply chain, you can have the most sophisticated downstream uh, stages of your supply chain. But upstream, if you just have control of a commodity, (laughs) then all the downstream doesn't matter. 
you know, uh, that the strength of a chain is the strength of its weakest link. Mm -hmm. And uh, who knows what uh, what armed China is getting ready to how they what they see their place is in the technology world. Who knows? But but uh, it's a good article and it's something to think about. And you also need to be aware of everything going on and don't underestimate anyone. Mm hmm. The way, I, the way I see it, just in closing, my final thoughts are, ARM says, we have this technology and we want access to your market. And China literally says, okay, well, give us all the technology and we'll kick you out after we have the technology. And then <laughs> we'll share it with our market. And if, if, they, if you knew that going into the deal, you wouldn't make the deal. But that's how the deal turned out, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but if they did it once, they'll do it again. So now you know how to deal with. Uh, anyway, that's the implication that that you naturally would think of. If they mm-hmm. did it once, they'll do it again. Yeah. That's how they do business. That's the that's the precedent that's set, and the government's not doing anything about it. And the government turns turns a blind eye. So that's how things are done there. Mm-hmm. So that that's so. And actually, if you think of it, uh, another way to think of it is that. Uh, well, is that does that give an advantage to China? Yes, it does. And uh, so, uh, in that sense, why wouldn't you do it? Because there's an advantage there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, there's reasons why you would have you would do it. So we would say, oh, that's unethical. This is well, it's unethical in the United States, but who knows? Maybe uh, in China, we do things here that may be unethical to them. Yeah. So, so you got to be careful uh, saying, "Oh, that's wrong." Uh, it's not how we would do it, but uh, it's gonna. It probably will help them. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is a devil's advocate art, but like you're saying, we say that's unethical, and China says, "Let me take you back 25 years. Um, look at this factory making textiles with 100,000 workers. 50% of them are under the age of 16. They work 80 hours a week." And this factory produces clothes that are sold in your department stores. So who's unethical? Us or you? I mean, they could make that argument. Sure, they could. Sure, they could. Um, they can. They can turn around on us too because we do things that they can look at and say, "Hey, you know, uh, listen to yourself and and apply what you're saying to your own actions." Mm-hmm. But I, 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 talking about the uh, the, uh, they say one thing. They make a deal, then they turn their back, you know, and says, oh, that's terrible. You shouldn't do that. Uh, but I just want to make one little comment. We'll move on, David. And that is, how many times did the United States government do that with the Native Americans? Yeah, that's true. So we did the same thing. The uh, I think it's easier to swallow uh, bad ethics when it benefits you. And then when it when it works out to your detriment, all of a sudden it's an outrage, and you're a, a moral warrior. Yeah, that's, that's just the way of the world, right? Yeah. So, you know, we're sons of Sequoia, and we talk, we listen, we have different views, and uh, our views uh, are we like to look at different ways of looking at things. Mm-hmm. And so we're not going to say this is what we think, and this is what we th- are going to push. A lot of people say, you know, we've said a lot of things here uh, today, and I just want to—I just want to make a point that, yeah, well, uh, we're looking at all different sides. Try to understand what all different people think. 
Yes, we're, before you move forward. And you know, we're not apologists for China's IP theft. We're just trying to understand why they would justify it. That's right. And it's easy to be outraged when you're the party that when you're the aggrieved party. Um, but it's difficult to sort of stare back in at yourself and say, "Have we ever been the aggrievor, not the aggrievee?" Um, I think it's a good point. So we do try to take things from all sides. Sometimes that sounds like sympathy for the bad guy in a story, but it's just sort of a realization that bad guys and good guys are fluid in this world. Nothing is black and white. And I mean, do I think this deserves condemnation? Yeah, but is anyone gonna do anything about it? No. (laughs) So it is what it is, right? I think you need to look at both sides, how people think, why they do what they do, in order to know how you need to move forward in the best way possible Mm -hmm. with your goals and your value systems. You can't have, you can't turn a blind eye or a, a, uh, a conspiracy eye, or you can't turn a, uh, you can't blame. You have to think about what people think about before you can make a good informed decision. Yes. So I think that's a good, oh, go ahead. I think we need more of that. Uh, in our nation, in our country, but also in the world, uh, especially with the internet. And people just need to start thinking of how other people think. Mm-hmm. Maybe what we need is what Arthur Clarke said, one time zone and aliens telling us what to do. <laughs> Maybe, you never know. Yeah, how would that work out? So, Who knows? So I'm playing the <laughs> outro music. Should we wrap up this episode? Okay, you ready? Uh-huh. Okay, we here at Sons of Sequoia uh, say that uh, uh, keep on talking, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying.